0: Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Barron. Every week, I speak to leading sustainability thinkers and practitioners, scientists, economists, NGOs, business leaders, and investors. We discuss the sustainability imperative, the key challenges, the latest thinking, and what's working in sustainability, resilience, and regeneration. Client Earth is an environmental law charity with a unique approach using the law to create powerful change that protects life on Earth. To meet the global challenges facing our planet, Client Earth used the power of the law to change systems for lasting change, informing, implementing and enforcing law and advising decision makers. Client Earth believes that a future in which people and planet thrive together isn't just possible, it's essential. I'm very pleased today to welcome Stefan Eikutz to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Stefan is Junior Professor of Sociology, Director at the Centre for Sustainable Society Research in Hamburg in Germany. Stefan is a sociologist, political scientist and science and technology scholar, working on global climate governance and sustainability transformations, with a particular focus on contemporary approaches to aligning economic activities and social practices with global ecological limits. So thank you very much, Stefan, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Thank you very much for having me. So uh, you are just back from COP26, and I'd very much like to talk to you today about your perspective on the COPs, the governance, how they operate, multilateral negotiations and those kind of questions, for sure. Maybe can you just tell us a little bit first about your background and uh, what what, what your, your work focuses on, Stefan?
1: Yes, so I'm a sociologist and political scientist, and I've been working on questions of climate policy and climate governance for quite a while now. I've been following also the COP process um, since uh, COP in um, Poznan, which was uh, in 2008. Uh, So it's been a while, but I haven't been to every COP. But what I'm mostly interested in is the ways in which um, different kinds of actors engage in these COPs. So it's not only about the negotiations, but about the broader perspective on what happens in these COPs, because they attract a lot of experts, civil society, etc. So that's
0: basically what I'm interested in. Now, a very rich topic and very timely. just before we start, I'd like to try to get a little bit of the feeling of the lay of the land. You know, Obviously, you've been involved in, 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 in looking at the climate crisis for some time. We've got all kinds of environmental uh, issues that are, are growing and becoming uh, more problematic. Uh, but what, what in particular is on your mind, keeping you awake, Stefan?
1: Yeah, I mean, um, we went through, I think, um, some very difficult times for many of us, um, uh, complicated times also globally uh, with the Corona crisis. Um, And uh, there have been many comparisons um, between the Corona and the climate crisis. And I think it's very interesting. It's different types of problems, but it's very interesting to think them in parallel. And um, if you do so, then you can only be... um,
0: Uh, very
1: worried about the two things, I think, the lack of solidarity in treating the Corona crisis and what that means for global cooperation um, on the climate uh, question. And then I'm I'm in Germany at the moment and um, we're going into the fourth wave uh, just as we went into the second wave. So there's a lack of foresight and planning um, that is absolutely horrendous, if you think of it. So if... Corona is a dress rehearsal of sorts for the climate crisis. Then we failed miserably, I think. And we have to really take stock of what happened and um, how we can avoid these failures um, in the future. So I think there is a big democratic question between um, these crisis, Corona and climate and other ecological problems, of course.
0: Yes. Yes. Very, very interesting. We'll come back to that, I'm sure. Um... Did you think, are we we in a climate emergency? I know Greta and and some of uh, younger activists have have been uh, trying to, uh, you know, get this message across and and, and indeed many other civil society and other activist groups. Um, Did you think we're in a climate emergency?
1: Well, I'm very sympathetic to the um, demands of those, Greta and others. And I do think, of course, that the situation is very preoccupying, that it's very serious um, that we need to shift gear in acting um, on climate. But I'm not sure about the emergency frame. It's just when you look at emergency frames and how they're used, um, how we use them in other policy issues, for example, um, then you will see that that normally means shifting um, power to the executive. Uh, it's normally undemocratic ways of deciding, will they be more effective? I'm not so sure. Why should we trust those that are in power um, to act more efficiently if we have give them these powers. And there's also, I think, a question of temporality that is really important because the transformation that we need to face the climate crisis is deep and it's going to be a long transformation. And um, this transformation has to be just and it has to proceed by trial and error. There's no way of planning it from now until the end. So somehow we need these democratic control mechanisms. Even if we need to shift gear, we have to keep deciding as a society or as a global society, and we need to include these forces. So there's no shortcut, I'm afraid. And I'm not sure about the emergency frame because it suggests that we just would have to um, change uh, something in the way we proceed and could then decide top down um, how we tackle this crisis. And I think um, that's unfortunately not true.
0: Yes, you talk about the temporality and, and this is something that's come up in the podcast numerous times that the, that it, it will take decades, even in the best case scenarios, even with tremendous transformation, decarbonization and so forth, to see the impact on the climate and over how long would a, would a climate emergency last? And over that time frame, how would we know where we were on our journey? You know, I mean, we've seen already questions, you know, the challenges with COVID, people wearing masks or or lockdown and things like that, where, where there's a much more immediate uh, feedback on, on what's happening in the world. You can see, you know, people literally dying uh, right there and then. And this is something where, you know we so we're looking up on the on the internet to see what's what 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 whether we can go out where we can go and, and, and just general generally what the rules are which is quite a, a stringent and stressful demanding for, for society for for a short period of time but over decades yeah
1: and I mean it really poses um very important question to our democratic institutions. Are we really ready for that? Can we I mean, it's sure that we need to act faster, um, but I'm not sure we need emergency powers for that. We need to proceed by trial and error. There is no way around it. And I think, um, I mean, one of the things that we have seen um, during the last couple of years is really that there is an, um, an extraordinary movement um, that emerges so civil society is really acting Uh, we have on the um, economic side we have um, renewables technologies that became much uh, less expensive so actually many of the things that we need are in place
0: we need to act Um, but do we need to act by emergency i'm not sure Yeah. Could could we have a bottom up climate emergency framing? I mean, you, I mean the kind of things Naomi Klein's been writing about, and you know, the transfer of power certainly. But there there is more. There is you know, uh, emerging voices, emerging groups, emerging networks, hmm. and they can play a bigger role, surely. Of course, and I mean, one of the things that the emergency framing
1: would permit, or that we can take for the climate debate, uh, is in general, um, that there has to be something like a climate priority over other um, public policy issues. So in Germany, for example, we had the discussion now um, if the environmental ministry or a new climate ministry should have a veto uh, right um, within uh, government consultation. So these types of um, questions are are important. Um, The the other thing is that, of course, if uh, we implement these policies in order for them to be long term uh, sustainable and sustained by a large part of society um, they need to be just and that is really i think the key challenge because we're moving from a phase where the question was do we do the transformation so it's if uh, if or not we do the transformation to one where i think it's more or less clear that the transformation is coming but the question is how is it going to be how will it shift, how it shift um, power relations in our societies? Um, will it profit um, those that have already, uh, and not the others, et etc.? So the question of a just transition yes. um,
0: is on the table. Yes, yes. You, you touched a little bit on on some of the civil society and so forth. Uh, I, I should ask what gives you what gives rise to optimism at the moment for you, Stefan, in this scenario. Hmm. Um,
1: yeah, I mean it's what i just uh, said if you think a few years back um 2010 uh, i remember an article by um, the sociologist by Ulrich Beck, yes um, author of the risk society and he um the article was called the climate for change and he wondered in this article why aren't there any mass protests for the climate because in two thousand ten that didn't exist it seemed uh, improbable that it would um, exist in the short term and his analysis what it's a An expert discourse, it's a global problem, Um, it's very difficult to mobilize. So um, this has to change in order for for a real transformation. Today, we're in a very different place. Of course, the urgency increased, but at the same time, we really have mass movements in different parts um, uh, of the world that are really acting for the climate. And so... um, There are things happening now. Similarly, we we published in 2015 um, a book uh, on climate governance and gouverner le climat, which was in French, and um, we called for breaking up the siloization of climate governance. So there are different silos. You look at environmental policy, uh, of in financial policy, economic policy, etc. And one of the problems of environmental problems not getting the attention they need and not being treated properly is that they're um, only treated as environmental problem, and so the same. This was true also for climate. This is also changing now. We see many countries, many governments, uh, many um, companies that really understand that climate policy is industrial policy, um, that it is territorial policy, etc. So um, things are shifting, and there are, I think, um, different elements of a puzzle that are um, uh,
0: coming together
1: that could really leverage. Um, the change that we need.
0: Yes, yes. And what does um, big big topic here? Uh, how, how should we evaluate the outcome of COP twenty um, six? Clearly, um, words are one thing, actions another, and it mm. will take time to see how many of the, the of what was promised uh, transpired and the commitments that people made and so forth. But. Um, I guess in order to answer that question, you, we got to think a little bit about what expectations cop and maybe where it fits in. What, what where where do the COPs fit in in terms of uh, how we think and negotiate and 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 manage and try and manage uh, climate?
1: Yeah, I mean that's a really vast um, question. I just came back from <laughs> from the COP, so uh, of course not everything is digested yet. And from one point, I think you can always, but that's something that is. Um, always the case. You can only be um, deceived by the outcomes of these big uh, circuses, by these big negotiations. Um, they are very slow. The UN fabric um, or the UN mechanisms are really slow. Um, they can only, in some ways, um, act upon things that are, have been made possible elsewhere. So that's very important because it's national governments that are negotiating there. Um, but Still, I mean, this COP was important because it is um, the first step in a a cycle. Um, And the cycle has begun in 2015 with the Paris Agreement. And the Paris Agreement has entered into force in 2020. So last year should should have been this COP. Now it's this year. And this is important because the Paris Agreement institutes a new way of climate governance, um, a new way of global climate policy, which... Uh, is voluntary, so many have written about this. But uh, basically, the idea is that countries, but also um, companies uh, and um, cities and other entities, submit voluntary climate pledges. And for company, uh, for um, states, this means uh, that they submit them, and these are then discussed in um, collectively in uh, different processes and. And um, through the transparency that the UN process generates, um, uh, it is hoped that there will be pressure on governments to then submit progressively more ambitious um, pledges. And 2020 is the beginning of this process. So it was kind of a test to see, is that actually happening? Did the governments submit pledges and are they ambitious enough? And on that point, um, no, uh, we, were, we are very far from what would be needed. Um, to uh, keep warming um, below dangerous levels, so the Paris Agreement also fixes common goals: 1.5 degrees, two degrees, well below two degrees, and we are very far from that. Um, but I think that's just kind of the formal um, side of the um, uh, of this conference. That what has been really striking at this conference. Um, are uh, two things. First of all, the Paris architecture was not complete yet. So there are operational details that had to be negotiated. That's uh, the so-called Paris rulebook and uh, rules on carbon market. And these negotiations are finished now, so the implementation phase can really begin. And the second thing is that the Paris Agreement is not only a set of institutional features. It's also a kind of philosophy. It's it's, a um, some of the architects have called it a Paris prophecy. So there is this hope that this agreement and this process will set um, in motion a kind of cyclical process, a momentum for climate action across all levels of society, all levels of government. And I think that is really important to understand in order to judge um what happened in the first days of the conference that was extraordinary. we had like ten or uh, announcements of initiatives of new pledges um Saudi Arabia going carbon neutral um uh, Turkey Russia et cetera having um, zero carbon pledges um and all these sectoral agreements we can come back to that um but so what we see is a flurry of announcements um which really some of which are potentially important, but some of which are also just recycling things that happened uh, or that were there already, or just ways of um, producing some positive announcements, so producing this momentum that this agreement needs. And so we have to be very attentive at um, if some of these announcements of these initiatives, et cetera, get formalized, and how they get formalized and how can they um, uh, produce some kind of accountability uh, so that we don't have every year new announcements and uh, everybody forgets about the old ones.
0: Yeah, yeah. So it's still a, a lot to digest still. Um, and, and and many uh, civil society groups and many uh, indigenous uh, people, other groups as well, uh, had problems with the, this COP. They felt excluded. And uh, yeah, this question of, I guess, input and a platform for various different voices. Can you talk a little bit about that in the sense of what what, what the vision and aspiration is and, and to what extent that was realized, I suppose?
1: Yeah, um, what we're doing at COPS, perhaps, um, is uh, I was there with a the team and we really look at the different spaces in this COPS. So we had um, uh, researchers working on um Uh, the protests, researchers uh, looking at um, company uh, activities, et cetera, and uh, somebody also the negotiations. I was partly in the negotiations and a colleague of mine too. And so the idea is really to get an overview, to feel what is happening in the climate um, governance arena. And I think what's what's really striking for us, it's the most is that this COP was certainly the most commercial COP ever. It was, of course, it has been remarked also that it was a very wide cop. There were uh, problems of access, etc. Um, but what struck us most really was the massive presence of firms um, of uh, private of the private sector of industry representatives, um, and this was uh, criticized a lot. For example, um, the massive presence also of fossil fuel interests, yeah. uh, lobbyists, yeah. yes.
0: um,
1: and uh of course I share that critique. I think that's that is uh, really problematic and um, it is uh, of course, um, some ways unacceptable. so there should be limits or exclusions for these um, uh, lobbyists because um, that's what happened, for example, in the World health organizations uh, where tobacco lobbyists at one point were excluded um, from uh, talks about the nocivity of uh, tobacco. But I think what is what we could perhaps, Um, We could also see it positively in some ways. What happened at this COP is that we saw that there's a huge interest of the private sector, huge interest also of fossil fuel industries in this process, which means that they think that this process is important and they think or they know that the future of their industries is negotiated or is um, uh, decided in parts uh, in what happens in these arenas. Not only, of course, it's uh, there are many arenas, but this is one of the important arenas in which really the struggle for the future of the global economy, for decarbonization, et cetera, takes place. And so um, this is something um, that we should uh, take note of. Uh, we are really in... Something is changing, and I think that was very... Um, very visible at this COP. Um, the downside of this, or the danger, the risk, is really that um, we also saw with these announcements of um, private companies pledging, for example, the financial um, industries uh, pledging with um, the, the initiative of led by uh, Mark Carney pledging to reduce um, fossil fuel investments. We see almost something like a re-enchantment of markets, of Um, um, businesses, of financial um, uh, investors, instead of um, something like a questioning of capitalist organization, of financialization as part of the causes um, for uh, the situation we're in, for the social and economic crisis. So um, we have something like a shift um, in terms of the narrative uh, about the origins and about the solutions to this crisis, which um, which is the downside of uh, this process that I described?
0: Yeah, very, very interesting. Yeah, I spoke to Frederick Ash from the uh, Green Finance Observatory, who had a lot to say about the, you know, the financial interests and the regime that's being constructed uh, to, you know, mm-hmm. bring private capital in, in various different ways. Um, can, can you talk a little bit about the UNFCC regime um, and you know where where the COP fits in? And a little bit, just explain the different actors there, and um, then we can get a sense of you know who's included, who's not included. And you, you mentioned the, the, the corporates and 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 the fact that their, their presence, what that symbolizes, but also you know literally what 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 impact do they have. Uh, within that, you know, which went national governments uh, were making decisions for certain, but there are other, uh, you know, auxiliary uh, agreements and all kinds of things going on there. I mean, a big topic, Mm -hmm. but I I don't know. There's a couple of things you could say about that, Stefan. Mm -hmm.
1: The UN system, I mean, um, the UNFCCC, so the Climate Convention, which was um, uh, adopted um, in 1992 at the Rio Earth Summit is... Um, not only a very old process in that sense, um, um, but I think also um, a process that from the beginning has been rather inclusive compared to, for example, uh, how f- trade negotiations were um, uh, conducted, inclusive in terms of civil society engagement and not necessarily um, uh, I don't necessarily mean corporate, uh, that they were also always present, but also civil society in terms of NGO, think tanks, indigenous communities. Um, so uh, this process actually gives a voice from my perspective um, more than other processes to, uh, um, to a plurality of actors, which does not mean that it's... Um, uh, sufficiently democratic it does not mean um, that it is uh, sufficiently inclusive but it is i think one of the more inclusive un uh, institutions and negotiations and that is important uh, i think if when we um, talk about UNFCCC, because um i would consider it today as one of many arenas in which uh, climate has to be discussed and which um, uh, decarbonization um, is discussed but if let's just take another institution the g seven so decarbonization is also on the agenda in the g seven or um uh, sometimes in the g20 um these institutions are much less inclusive in terms of um, representation of governments um, in terms of representation of civil society etc and they they don't have also the same legal um uh, uh, format as um, these UN conferences. So what they decide are usually um, declarations, um, and uh, we don't have um, this kind of process that is slow, but that builds progressively uh, legal norms, which is the UNFCCC. And so this is what makes um, uh, the the climate convention and the COPS, I think, um, despite all deception, um, uh, which makes them important. Um, One other feature, I guess, is Um, that uh, since um, the Paris Agreement, um, there has been a layer, a discursive and communicative layer. Um, I touched upon this um, a while ago um, and we called this in an article that um, it's kind of an enchantment or an incantatory governance, um, which means uh, that discursive and communicative elements and strategies are becoming core element of this um, uh, governance, so it's about not only about deciding on rules and regulations, but also on shaping a discourse, a shaping a certain um, belief and expectations uh, among uh, private and public actors that the world is moving towards decarbonization. And so um, today we have in parallel, that therefore, um, this quite slow institutional legal process and at the same time uh, an ever more important mega event that uh, develops around um, uh, the formal negotiations and which is the place where initiatives meet where um, uh, announcements are made etc and these two spheres um, actually are at the same place but in terms of how they function and what they do they're quite separate and quite um, different um and perhaps a last thing about the u n system in general um uh is that it is um a, a system that is um very consensual very um, works in a way that is uh, there's this u n civility so um Normally, countries will not point at each other individually. They will rather engage in technical uh, language. And it's very important uh, and very difficult sometimes to find really the political heart of the discussion. This is different, of course, in kind of uh, the big declarations that are made in the plenaries. But in the negotiations themselves, it's very technical, very UN style, etc. Um, This also means that civil society has a very important role in creating transparency for this process, in translating what happens there and also in putting pressure on governments. Because if this Paris framework is to work in any way, it can only work if there's um, sufficient uh, pressure from outside, if there are other initiatives um, that make things uh, possible within the UN arena. But um, the UN arena itself will never be at the avant-garde, if you want, of the climate debate. It cannot be. It's too slow as an arena.
0: Yeah, but very interesting. Very interesting, and I, I, I guess uh, the, the the wide range of perspectives and expectations with respect to COP twenty six is is quite fascinating as well. And, mm. and there are, are so many voices that uh, from quite a wide spectrum that are saying it's just been a huge disappointment, and rhetoric, and governments are not making commitments, and watering down of language, and um quite strong stuff
1: yeah of course and um as i said uh i don't disagree in some ways with this uh, with these assessments but um my view is perhaps more uh, one of if we imagined for one second that this process would not exist let's just make this thought experiment um I don't think that we would hear the voices of Tuvalu, of indigenous communities, et cetera, in, for example, the German political debate, in the German news, uh, in the UK news, in uh, the French news. This is what this process makes possible. Um, What this process also makes possible, I think, is to provide attention to the climate um, uh, topic for two weeks, to really create an opportunity for social movements, for example, to try to um, impose their framings. Uh, It provides an arena for networking for all kinds of um, uh, actors, also business actors, but also civil society. Cities have been very strongly represented in this arena um, over the last years, for example. City networks are really um, uh, doing a lot for decarbonization, And so um, I think... uh, Some of the deceptions perhaps are also linked to um, an impression of, or in believing this discourse that is often uh, told about these cops and this media framing that world leaders there decide on our future. And I think that is, we need to change that narrative. It's not world leaders that decide about our future at the cops, but what is made possible there, we have to uh, make it possible in the struggles in Germany, in France, um, in uh, the US, uh, in China, et cetera, governments will move if they feel that they have to move. And so um, somehow this would be a more realistic view on uh, these COPs, I think, without being critical. It's important to to be critical of of the results. But I think, for example, I mean, one thing that was very much discussed was the question, um, in this COP was the question of the uh, fossil fuel uh, phase out and um, the phase out of a uh, phase down at the end then uh, <laughs> of coal power And of course that's a the formulation has been watered down. at the beginning um, uh, it said a phase uh, out of fossil fuels and coal and then it was efforts to phase out and unabated coal and um, inefficient fossil fuel subsidies et etc. But that is how these um, uh, negotiations function. And it still is the first time that this is explicitly mentioned in uh, in a COP document. Um, And more importantly, I think it shows, again, how these um, negotiations function. Actually, the formulations that went into that um, uh, appeared before that. Uh, in the International Energy Agency uh, net zero report, then in a G7 statement. And so we see that somehow other arenas prepared for what happened at the COP. And in many countries now, the end of coal is really a subject of discussion. In Germany, we have, for example, a plan, a coal phase out plan, which is much too late for the moment, but still it's there. And so This is what COPs are. And of course, if you look at India, the question of a coal phase out is a whole different problem um, than uh, in developed countries. So somehow it's understandable also um, that uh, this is a very contentious topic.
0: Complex and tied into economic development, poverty, all kinds of related questions. Sure. Um, Very, very interesting. How transparent would you say is the COP governance? I mean, who funds the COPs? um, can you talk a little bit about that question?
1: Um, concern f- concerning funding, um, that really depends. Uh, generally, I mean, the UN is funded by governments, but um, the COPs themselves are very often sponsored also by uh, private companies. That's um, what the COP presidency, how the COP president decides to organize. And in my, um, uh, in my memory, the first time that I saw that massively actually was in COP 21 in Paris, where... The organization of uh, the COP, um, there was kind of a funding bit uh, before the organization of COP21 um, uh, where uh, the French government asked uh, private companies to contribute um, to uh, the funding effort. Um, of course, that's a problem, and that is. Um, Uh, part of why you see so many logos, for example, at uh, at COP26 that was really massive, uh, the logos of Bloomberg, Microsoft, uh, Google, et cetera, all over the place. Um, But then again, um, what is very interesting is that you will see this mostly in the climate action zone, in the country pavilions, so in spaces that are not the official negotiation spaces. The official negotiation spaces are usually kept in very... Um, sober, uh, uh, neutral UN style, and I think basically um, the ways in which companies influence the negotiations themselves. I'm not sure that this happens primarily at the global level or at the um, uh, at the conferences themselves. Uh, of course, they also try to lobby there, um, but um, more important is, of course, the direct. Lobbying efforts that they have, um, that they do uh, with their respective national governments. So, uh, German car manufacturers will not try to lobby the COP presidency. They will directly call um, Angela Merkel or uh, the transport minister um, uh, to get their decisions um, respected. And in the COP negotiations, and that's um, I think important to recall, it's always com- it's always, <laughs> and it's always state representatives that have. Um, uh, a voice and it's only state representatives. So it's states, it's a UN um, negotiation. So um, while there is this question of who finances the COP is an important question, I think um, it's uh, also um, in part um, the real problem is probably the influence of, um, of lobbies on their national governments and not um, on uh, the COP process per se.
0: Yes.
1: Um but uh, of course, uh, that uh, can be debated.
0: Very interesting. Very interesting. Can can the COP evolve? I mean, Paris was a a a, a change uh, and a kind of more bottom-up type approach. Um, w- w- what would it, an evolving COP look like? I mean, there's been the People's Summit this year, um, mm-hmm. and I'm just wondering: uh, is there a process for that? How does that happen? Or indeed, what would be a couple of things that you think? could possibly happen or would be a good thing to happen
1: yeah i mean um perhaps before uh, uh before talking about um the wishes uh one thing that really worries me uh is that the two next cops uh, will be um in egypt and uh in uh, the emirates um united Arab emirates so um which is not in itself uh um it's good that it's countries from the Global South that organize the COP. But of course, we all know um, that uh, Egypt, for example, um, will probably be in Sharm el-Sheikh. Uh, it will probably be a very uh, securitized COP uh, and a COP in which the local civil society um, will uh, probably not have um, uh, very much access. So we risk to see really... Um, Continuity in terms of um, commercialization of the COP, in terms of private sector um, uh, presence, um, but much less civil society uh, that is present. So that's um, really uh, a problem. Um, This being said, um, I think one of the um, important uh, ways forward is. Really, to understand that if this process is one of several arenas, and if um, uh, what happens there is very much determined by um, the outcome of struggles in other arenas, then it's very important to combine the attention on the COP with um, really bringing the struggle to. Uh, other important international and national institutions, which means, for example, financial governance, for example, um, trade governance. Um, There have been uh, interesting discussions lately on this. And I mean, um, trade governance, for example, had been a very political, very contentious issue in the 90s, um, uh, beginning of 2000s. Um, And today the question is really, um, the institutions that have been created are not only problematic from a social point of view, from an international inequality point of view, but also from a climate point of view. And so um, we need to really politicize from a climate point of view, the way we organize um, the global economy and the way we, um uh, global governance works in many arenas. So that's one way forward. Um, the other one is really um, and more closely um, connected to this Paris process is to develop the capacity of civil society to create transparency on what happens on these COPs, and this is particularly important with all these um, strategy of overwhelming um, the public by announcements that we have seen at this COP. So, um, what is good, uh, what is new uh, among these announcements, how can that be tracked, um, how can they be held accountable The um, the countries that are in there. Um, and that is, uh, I guess, um, a struggle that has to take place at all levels um, of uh, government um, and in all sectors. So really trying to understand what happens to all of these announcements and hold those accountable that um, signed them, for example.
0: Yeah, yeah, very interesting, very interesting. I, uh, oh, oh, I wasn't thinking about future cups. Um, <laughs> the, the, uh, there's been talk. I don't know whether you're familiar with it like this. President Macron has been talking about. Uh, an alliance from multilateralism and that uh, the multilateral structures are failing and that kind of thing. Um, there's been talk of, uh, I know some people have talked about um, replacing the, the, uh, the, you, know, the you, you, you touched on there, but the international trade and finance institutions play a bigger role. Um, and and I guess there's been talk for, I guess, some idea of what new Bretton Woods type system Um who, who, can you talk a little bit about that? Um, some of these uh, ideas you, sound interesting. Sometimes, but mm-hmm. they're moving into more secretive, maybe um, less democratic, less open kind of uh, environments. And um, what what might be interesting? What what could we learn from the Bretton Woods type system um, that might be helpful?
1: Um. I mean, of course, all of these proposals are, um, uh, I think, very important in the sense that climate is, um, as is often said, uh, a problem that touches all elements of our political economic um, uh, system. Um, Some call it an everything problem. So it's um, and the more the climate crisis intensifies, the more this is true. We have. Called this um, in research that I've done with colleagues, um, we have called this process "climatization." So there is um, uh, climate is diffusing as a problem into all different areas um, of politics, of society, etc. We're counting carbon emissions when we um, uh, when we go to the supermarket um, uh, and um, also. Uh, um, government decisions very often now um, have to take into account climate impacts depending on the countries, et cetera. Companies count their carbon emissions. So somehow it is logical and I think very important that climate gets integrated into um, organizational processes and also into governance processes that take place in other arenas and especially those where the power is. So economic governance, trade governance, financial governance um, are key uh, arenas to leverage in order to um, make this transformation happen. The problem is um, that some of these proposals have suggested to replace the UNFCCC um, uh, by um, these other arenas, and I see no reason for hoping that if we do so, first of all, um, the results will be more convincing because um, negotiations will be um, just as uh, controversial in these arenas, and perhaps more. Um, and also, uh, no reason for hoping that it will be somehow more democratic. I think, in, at the contrary, what happens in the, UF, the UNFCCC is somehow the least in uninclusive and the least undemocratic institution for the moment um, of the big UN um, uh, institutions that we have. So, in in a sense, my Impression or my um, uh, position on that would be it's good that the UNFCCC stays the center of gravity of sorts of this debate um, and of uh, climate politics on the global level. Um, But we really need to understand that climate policy is made in all these other institutions, and we have to politicize these institutions from Um, this point of view, and it starts at the national level. I mean, many uh, climate-relevant decisions are not, or most, are not taken in environmental ministries or climate ministries, but in the economic economic ministries, in transport ministries, in um, uh, agriculture, finance, um, the financial ministry, of course. And um, so uh, bringing climate into these um, ministries um, uh, is very important and has to be done. Um, Just to illustrate the risks of what happens if we make other institutions the main institutions for tackling climate change? One can look again at Germany in 2000. Uh, not pretty sure, but the first a big coalition after coalition between um, the SPD, so the Social Democrats and the Greens, where the first real climate policy was taken um, or was put in place. After that was um, we had the decision to move climate policy or energy. Uh, policy and uh, the energy transition as a topic from the um, environmental ministry to the economic ministry. And the argument was, then it will be treated more efficiently, because that's a much more um, powerful, much uh, bigger um, uh, ministry. But of course, what happens then is that you have the same bureaucrats that have been opposing the energy transition for, for most of their um, uh, time and service, all of a sudden, um, being put into the position of deciding over the future of um, environmental policy. And we have very prominent examples of, uh, of bureaucrats that have been blocking for decades now the energy transition in Germany. So that's the kind of problems you get when you shift arenas without thinking of the consequences.
0: Yeah, yeah, very, very interesting, very interesting. Now, one of the the, the disappointments of COP26 was the, the richer countries' uh, failing failure on their pledge uh to 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 uh, deliver 100 i think it's 100 billion uh dollars a year um complicated question complex issue is how it's funded loans that kind of thing um in general um but i'm just wondering uh underlying all of this uh, and and, and Presumably one of the reasons for for the presence of so many companies and finances, uh, financial companies at uh, COP26 is uh, the kind of eye-watering sums of money that are being touted around that are not even touted around, that are that are coming out that that, that uh, will be necessary for decarbonisation. Mm-hmm. Where is the money going to come from? I'm just wondering, um, we were talking about Bretton Woods and so forth, uh, the IMF, SDRs, that kind of thing. Is there talk or do you know anything about that arena? Is that something that people are looking at some kind of global uh, climate uh, IMF type organization with with kind of uh, climate SDRs or something Mm. like that? I I just uh, kind of uh, curious to, to know about that. I'm
1: not aware of any formal uh, discussion on that type of institution, but that doesn't mean that it um, doesn't exist. I mean, you have several climate funds um, that exist uh, within the UN system uh, already. Um, the Global Environmental Fund, uh, um, uh, Adaptation Fund, um, and um, uh, the Green Fund, etc. So you have different institutions. We, you have, of course, the big funding institutions like the World Bank, like the Multilateral Development Banks. And I think... Um, one of the um, objectives uh, has to be, and it's an ongoing struggle, um, to make these institutions already uh, to clean or to uh, make these institutions climate friendly. So to really make sure that they fund only um, projects uh, that uh, are reducing emissions and renewables, et cetera, and not new coal-fired plants, for for example, as this was massively the case um, still a few years ago. Um, And uh, then, of course, um, the question of mobilizing uh, these huge amounts, I mean, it's this uh, discussion, the problem of this discussion is always um, as long as you consider mobilizing these amounts for questions of equity, um, uh, international solidarity, it's very difficult for um, politicians to justify that um, in the national context. So uh, I don't imagine um, a German finance minister um, uh, saying, okay, we need to mobilize, um, I don't know how many uh, uh, billions of dollars for because um, we um, caused the climate crisis. That's a very difficult type of argument to make. What is possible, I think, and that's where the um, comparison I think with Bretton Woods uh, makes sense, is to really reconceive um, the politics of international stability, to really think of climate um, finance and of financing of a green transition as a new politics of planetary stability, because we know very well and we see all kinds of reports from military institutions, from security um, institutes, et cetera, telling us um, that climate change is among the big uh, future uh, um, security risks on the international level. And so financing um, uh, this transition in countries like India and countries um, like South Africa um, uh, is um, a contribution to international um, uh, security and international stability so reconceiving it in that way i think um makes it perhaps more amenable to um the national debates because it's
0: there that again the struggles have to be won um but there has been a change there has been uh, this uh the money tree the modern monetary theory that mm-hmm. seemed to be Uh, whether whether there is a reaction to that with all kinds of austerity is another matter. But those kind of ideas seem to be gaining prominence and, uh, you know, Presumably, there's similar kinds of ideas. I guess you can mm-hmm. think of in, in in the international arena, but that's very interesting. There was there was a discussion
1: on climate bonds, um, for example,
0: at one point. Yes, D- Daniela Gabor, again at the Green Finance Observatory, mm-hmm. Observatory has talked a lot about this and um, mobilising the kinds of structures that are the multilateral banks are mm. putting together to mobilise, you know, private capital and de-risk it, as it were, which is uh, quite problematic. Yeah, I mean- as
1: well. The pitfall, the pitfall in these discussions, of course, is always um, the uh, what kinds of effects has that on global inequality? So, um, yes. do you have to? I think if you talk about de-risking, you always have to um, talk about uh, in parallel about increasing the risk for other kinds of investments in order to
0: um, uh, not just give. Like a windfall profits to to the financial industry. Yes, or maybe a radical idea, you know, reducing profits. <laughs> just wondering. Finally, uh, you you said something quite interesting there. The, the COP twenty six, the COP is never going to be the avant garde. I'm just wondering. Finally, what kind of radical, impactful ideas do you think are are, are being neglected by uh, the the UN triple uh, C regime, or, or 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 that are up for debate like that? Are there one or two that that, that you that you find interesting? Um,
1: I mean, um, there are a whole range of <laughs> radical ideas that are not um, considered by the UN system because of its nature. what I said, this very consensual, very um, uh, this nature of interstate negotiations, etc. But I think um, one of the like historically, um, uh, one of the discussions that um, really got traction at one point, um, but that wasn't really taken up, is um, the question of limits, limits to growth and reconsidering growth. Um, there was uh, there were discussions at one point, of course, we have sustainable development, but before that, uh, there was a discussion on eco-development. Um, and I think um, uh, now with the whole... Planetary boundaries um, debate, et cetera. We have a kind of a reminiscence of uh, these kinds of debate. And I think perhaps um, there is a window of opportunity with the climate crisis and with the interlocking different crises that we had um, COVID, et cetera, Corona, um, to re put that on the agenda, not in the climate negotiations themselves, but um, in the broader. Um, debate on um, climate governance. So, what kind of growth? I like post-growth uh, more than degrowth because it's not about reducing per se, but it's about reconsidering what we want to grow and how we want to to grow and where. Um, of course, there are countries that um, are in dire need of uh, of also economic development. Um, and uh, of course, um, I mean, the question that has to be uh, posed is also of the ways in which um, we organize the global economy. And if um, this uh, financial capitalism that we have today is really comfortable with resolving the climate and other crises. So um, I think one of the uh, great strength of this system has been that it produces innovations, that it produces new products, that it produces um, uh, new, uh, things all the time. Um, but that's also, of course, the main, uh, one of the main uh, problems. And the question is, can we sustain, um, the climate in a system that is so focused on short-term profits and not producing more? And if not, then, uh, the discussion has to be how we can go into another mode, how we can reduce without Um, giving up uh, on some of the the achievements, some of the social achievements and democratic achievements um, uh, that we have and that are built in our societies on um, continuous growth. So I think these are debates that are really important, but that, of course, will not make it into the core of uh, UN governance at the moment.
0: Yeah, very interesting. Very interesting. What's next for you, Stefan? In
1: terms of... um, research i think one one of the things that i'm really interested in at the moment is to i've been following the un negotiations for quite some time but to really understand how uh, what happens there is inserted in a continuum um, that goes beyond the cops and how societal agency um, how different types of um, societal actors are organizing in different fora so for example we have um, the the movement of um, climate litigation court actions against companies against um uh, uh, against governments that is building it that is really becoming a global phenomenon yes a yeah. phenomenon for a while um it's very strong in europe it's very very strong in um Latin america and kind of other countries of the global south so um i think that is a really interesting and really important um uh, uh, movement not in itself i don't think that courts will um, bring us out of this situation by themselves but in combination with what happens um in uh, political struggles in um, protests in uh, the climate governance arena so i think i'm somehow um, i don't i think i don't believe in kind of a grand soir of the climate where everything will change at once it's a too complex a problem for that I believe, but I do believe in the progressive building up of societal agency, of capacities to act. And um, that is, I think, uh, the process and uh, the questions that I want to focus on.
0: Well, that's a wonderful vision, Stefan. And thank you so much for joining me today and sharing your thoughts, your fruit of your research and work over such a long time. And I wish you the best of success with your ongoing work, Stefan.
1: Thank you very much. Uh, It was a very interesting discussion. Thank you.
0: The Environmental Justice Foundation is an NGO working to protect environmental security as a basic human right. Using powerful films and photography alongside hard-hitting investigations, EJF exposes environmental destruction and ensuing threats to human rights, telling the stories of those at the front lines. EGF takes local fights to the very heart of governments and businesses across the world to secure lasting global change. By providing training for grassroots campaigners, EGF also helps to give a voice to the next generation of environmental defenders, strengthening global action to protect people, wildlife and our shared planet. You can find out more at ejfoundation.org. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up on iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.